This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with mental performance consultant at Tampa Bay Rays, Chris Goodman. He discusses the notion of staying present and why this is important to athletes, the work of PMR and how understanding how to tense and relax can positively affect athlete performance, as well as understanding an individual's development whilst at the younger professional ages. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Chris, listen, really appreciate you jumping on. Um, how are you? Or are, are things all safe and well your end? They are. I'm excited to be here, Michael. Um, I love getting to talk a little bit about the mental performance and the uh, just the scope in which I, I work under. So um excited to be here. Perfect. So, yeah, I, I've had a few different people in this discipline on, and I always find it fascinating because I always liken it to probably the bit of sport that is very hard for coaches or people looking in to actually know what's going on in the player's head or understand the pressure of the feeling or you know I guess know how to effective it in a positive way but before we get into that type of stuff for people that maybe don't know you don't know your background or your current work do you just want to kind of give us a bit of a whistle-stop tour and I guess what you're doing now and how you've ended up there yeah so for me, this uh, this job and the uh, desire to do this really started for me back in 2009. I was a junior in high school. I grew up in Minnesota, just south of the Twin Cities, and um, I was watching ESPN. And on ESPN, they had an E60 about Evan Longoria and Ken Rabiza. And at the time, Evan Longoria was with the Tampa Bay Rays and Ken Rabiza, who is many times thought of as like the grandfather of uh, sports psychology or the godfather of sports psychology, I think a lot of times people say. Um, so they're working together and it, it was just a really cool way uh, um, of just a good insight and look at how people like Evan Longoria, who is a, who is a big leaguer, uh, are training mentally and like what it means to them to train the mental game um, from just kind of creating clarity to sticking with routines to breathing to handling failure and so when I watched that as a junior in high school um, I had aspirations to play professional baseball so I thought wow I want to learn more about this so that I can uh, live out my dream but that'd be really cool to to do when I'm whenever I'm done playing and so from high school I was fortunate and got to um, a scholarship to play baseball at the University of Iowa so I was there for four years and while I was there I got my degree in psychology because I, I had this aspiration and then um, was fortunate again in 2015, got drafted by the Marlins and played uh, about four parts of four seasons of professional baseball and really got to see some some things uh, and experience some of the aspects of, of the mental side that really tested me. And I certainly look back and I like, man, I wish I would have done this a little bit better um, I'm, I also am glad that I can look back and say, I'm glad I did this because I think it helped me to do that. But right after um, I was done playing in 2018, I went right to Minnesota State Mankato and got my master's in sport and exercise psychology and uh, had a stop at IMG Academy in 2019 as well before joining uh, the Tampa Bay Rays in 2020. Perfect. I think, yeah, loads of really interesting bits that we can pick up on. I guess the first bit for me, um, which links in a little bit to your playing side, was you mentioned around that initial documentary that kind of piqued your interest, if you like. When you're um, then going through that psychology um, major, etc., and that's what you're focusing on, how much does that raise your awareness as a player of both maybe what your strengths are and maybe what areas you need to develop, but also, I guess, some helpful and unhelpful characteristics or traits that teammates are showing? Because I can imagine as a high school player, maybe not having any training in that area, you know, you kind of play the game of baseball, you go, this is how we play, this is how we've always played it. But when you're adding in this mental side of the game that maybe traditionally coaches haven't been taught 
um you're probably picking up on some cues and stuff that maybe some of the other individuals around you aren't picking up on yeah and i think that there were you know hindsight many times is 2020 and so when i would look back at my high school days um i would i see where i was like yeah i let distractions kind of grab me whether it was stuff that happened in school maybe it was uh you know relationship stuff with friends or or uh maybe at a time like a girlfriend things like that like those easily affect I think those easily affect people in general, but obviously young people even more so. Um, and so there were times that even in high school, I remember experiencing like kind of a, uh, a personal distraction and I had a really bad game and I had, uh, there were some college scouts there. And I just remember thinking that, wow, that was, that's probably not great, but also, okay, what did I learn from that? I have to be able to separate. And so even then going into college, I guess there were times when you start to notice things about yourself or your teammates and like, yeah, they're just, they're really talented. And you find that with, with a lot of players and athletes that their talent, as you start to climb the ladder, those get closer and closer together, you know, from one player to the next. But the, the ones who end up standing out more so are the ones who can separate from distractions where they can be more present and they have their own ways of getting present. So I started to really find those ways to get more present when I was in college from uh, writing certain things out. And I would uh, kind of like intention setting, I would write these out on a piece of paper and I put it on kind of next to my door frame of my room. So every time I would come in or come out, I'd probably look at it for sure as I was on my way out and um, just kind of check back in and, and just good reminders. And then you kind of have good ways, find different ways to prepare. And again, for me, it was all about getting to the present and how often can I get there? How can I use, um, you know, kind of uh, second order thinking or um, critical thinking to go from past, uh, what I did in the past to get to the present and also what might happen in the future so I can be more present as well. So linking back to what you said at the start there, you mentioned around younger people potentially being more um, open to distraction or maybe having more distractions because of the areas of their life. Why do you think that is? And is that a common common problem across kind of all US schools or all sports that you, you've seen or read into? I think, it, you know, I'm not uh, an expert in uh like neurology or or anything close to that but from some of the things that i've i've learned about is just like how the brain is developed at that time and i think so much of our decision making uh part of our uh, our frontal lobe uh is not that's kind of the last piece that is developed in, in our brain and the frontal lobe is has everything to do with decision making and so i think just from the the aspects like our perception, our perspective, and because those are going to go into how we how we uh, make decisions. And so for younger people, um, you know, for males before you're 25, and I think about like so much of my own life, and, and I think about back to my teammates, you know, you're going through a lot of different things in college. And even when I graduated college, I was 22. So by the time I go into professional baseball, I'm still not fully de developed when it comes to my decision-making process. Uh, and so you just have to, you have to find different ways. And it's great to have coaches there who can kind of, who can guide you in that. And on the mental side, and I'm not even um, meaning specifically like more of a clinical side of it, where you might dive more into brain development, but just decision-making, um, understanding cognitive biases. And so I think that's where, younger athletes fall into that trap by no fault of their own that's just kind of that's just part of being human and being uh part of being a young human this, this leads into a question and we don't really have it over in in the uk so it'd be interesting to see if you could explain to us what it is and then kind of get your perception of it around the uh, little league world series oh yeah yeah so i always find that dynamic really interesting because i can imagine those kids that end up you know, being on ESPN or whatnot, 
in their hometown might get treated a bit like royalty and you know the flavor of the day if you like and you talk about mm. distractions in terms of I know higher up it's about performance and whatnot but you talk about distractions in and around it I think that type of thing would it highlights it where you know girls might be interested or you know there might be people asking you to do interviews or advertising or that type of stuff so I guess how how do you think younger athletes can ground themselves and stay in that presence so they get a better understanding that that is a bit of background noise but ultimately I want to focus on this um, and yeah if you want to explain what the Little League World Series is that'd be great because I, I, I'm fascinated by it looking from the outside in. Yeah, well, also not a an expert on the Little League World Series either, other than I never played Little League. My town didn't have Little League uh, baseball. So you have to be – Little League baseball is a uh, a league in itself, and not every – if I understand it correctly, not every um, town or city in the United States has Little League. Um, so how it works is like once you're in that kind of um, that organization – you have the opportunity to go play in the Little League World Series and all over the country. And, and of course, it's a it's a fairly big deal. As you mentioned, you're going to be on ESPN if you do make it to Williamsport in Pennsylvania. Um, I do think that part of the um, part of being a kid and like these these little leaguers are, I believe, around 12 years old. And I think they also have a leg up because they're they're naive and, and in a great way. Uh, I mean that kind of in a, in a compliment is that they probably, for some of them, they might not grasp the, like the stage really. To them, baseball has always been just this game. It's just been fun. And I think the ones who are also talented and naive, they probably shine on that stage because it's just another game to them. Uh, they don't really uh, get too distracted or overwhelmed with the fact that there's cameras or that there's more people in the stands or that um, or even really understand that how many people might be watching it just around uh, the United States. So they can just go out there and play freely and be present because they're just having fun. They're just there with their teammates, their friends, um, and they're just focused on, you know, having fun. Now, of course, there are some kids who are probably going to fall more into the bucket of they are they can totally grasp what is going on and that derails them and distracts them and maybe even you know um paralyzes them in the performance aspect of it and so when you're looking at it from a, a staying present type of type of um analogy that you spoke about earlier i guess how do you get the individuals you're working with or how did you get yourself to I guess identify what is personal to them and what works for them because I imagine there's plenty of strategies that people can use as you said kind of writing etc but what what kind of process do you go through to help people identify that actually this is what works for me or at this moment in time this is what's helping me stay present into this moment and not worry about the amount of people watching at home or if my girlfriend's in the crowd or if you know I make this I get a scholarship offer how do you get them to focus on the actual baseball side of it yeah well I think a lot of it is going to be trial and error for sure now the difficult piece in the trial and error is how long do you stick with a trial as you are making these errors and I think about okay um, with every single trial and error what part of the error is controllable uh, to us, because I think that can help us stick to at least some sort of it. We talk, we might talk about like, yeah, you got to trust the process. Well, at what point do you kind of abandon that particular process and go to another one? And I think it goes to, well, are we making mistakes based off of what are controllable? You know, whether it is uh, our our energy, our effort. Um, okay, also where our focus is going. Like, if we continually are losing focus. Well, then it's probably not our uh, the process that is wrong. It's our it's the fact that we can't focus. And so now also looking at certain evidence based um, factors of, OK, 
how does meditation play into this and mindfulness practices and just continually directing our attention. So with some players, um, it all comes down to like, what are they open to trying? And some players are more open to trying some mindfulness practices than others. Now, one thing that I try to do is grab commonalities. No matter who you are, you are going to talk to yourself, right? And now maybe for uh, yourself, Michael, or for someone listening, they're going to be thinking, well, do I talk to myself? And if you just thought about that, you do talk to yourself, right? So now what we can use our self-talk to direct our focus. And it's not about never getting distracted. I, I believe the best in the world get distracted. It's just part of being human. Now, I also think what the best in the world do is direct their focus better than anyone anyone else. They just, they have to do that. And so we think about our attention as like a flashlight and you get to direct it wherever you would like. Now, if I shine my flashlight to my Starbucks coffee uh, on my left, it doesn't mean that everything else is eliminated from the room, but this is where my focus is. And so now it's what's what are the most important details of the task that I am trying to accomplish? And so for our hitters, um, there are no blind baseball players in uh, in Major League Baseball. And and so we have to see the baseball for one. So maybe we check in like, how well are you seeing the ball? Let's first start there. Like, let's direct our attention to seeing the baseball. Let's direct our attention to the things that are in our control. And I think when you start to do that, you start to uh, kind of sift through some of the distractions and they they become a little bit quieter. They don't uh, eliminate, but they become quieter. And so I guess looking at the looking off the back of that, obviously, you mentioned about trying to sift through and work through that process. Is that a very individualized thing? Is that me coming to you and saying, listen, I'm feeling this at the moment, or is that an external thing from you saying, I'm watching you from a distance, this is what I see you doing, or this is when I see you being engaged and being focused, and this is when I maybe see you being disengaged. How, what does that process look like? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a little bit of both, and it goes a lot to the relationship that I have with the players. Uh, now, some of the guys that I might have just met this season or when I met them last year, my process probably right away isn't, you know, hey, this is what I see. I, uh, You look like you're distracted. Your body language is poor, um, which gives me the clue that you, your self-talk is poor. So I usually don't go straight in for, uh, for the kill in a sense, like try to get to understand them and also for them to, to understand me and what it is that I do. And so I've found that there, uh, it, it becomes a little bit easier on the, the working relationship when you just kind of get to know each other as people. Now, there are some players who are, they want to jump into it right away. They, un, they learn what my title is and they're like, okay, that person can help me be better on the physical side. So, okay, they just start asking questions and like, hey, what do you observe? There are some pitchers who after every outing, uh, even sometimes right after the, the, within the game, after their outing, they do kind of their arm care routine. Uh, after they pitch, they come and they might stand right next to me in the dugout and say, hey, what did you see? And so now we start going through it. But um, for other guys, it takes a little bit longer. Maybe it, they're... Uh, they don't trust people as much. They want to observe other coaches and uh, they want to observe how the coach works with those players first before they totally trust them uh, about, you know, just their opinion in general. So but I try to ask a lot of questions, uh, not just mental performance questions, just questions in general to get to know them. And then I think you can also get to understand a little bit of how they think and make decisions in their everyday life and how that affects what they do on the field. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think baseball can last like four or five hours. Majority of the time it's you know, it's quite a long sport. And we talk about that flashlight of being able to remove your focus where it needs to. Now I'd imagine it's almost impossible for someone to stay fully focused for a five hour period that's not going to happen i know you've obviously got nine innings and they'll be in and out and stuff but for someone like a catcher 
who is going to be paramount during all nine of those innings. Obviously, you want him to remain focused, etc., for relatively throughout. How do you get them to create strategies to help them kind of know when to turn that switch on or off or when to put that flashlight where they need it and then maybe somewhere where they can relax a bit and then back to being focused? What, what type of tactics have we got to do that? Yeah, well, you're certainly right. In the game of baseball, it's, it can be really, really long. Um, yeah, th- fortunately, we, we don't have too many games that go uh, four or five hours, uh, but they have been known they can do that. Uh, and so I'll talk to players a lot about how it's it's unrealistic to hold yourself to a standard of holding your attention for that period of time without uh, breaking at all. It's yeah, it's just not going to happen. And so can you do it within like kind of 15 second windows? We also now have, um, at least in the minor leagues, a pitch clock. And so it, it varies on when, uh, if there's players on base, we'll just stick to, for simplicity, we'll stick to when a player is not on base, there's 14 seconds. And so the batter has to be in the box uh, by nine seconds. Uh, and then the pitcher has to throw it within uh, that 14 second window. And so we're thinking of it as kind of like a funnel and uh, you have a 14 second or maybe even sometimes a five second funnel to get back to doing what it is that you're trying to do. So our thinking and our decision-making process has to be really, really quick. And that only happens through practice. Um, But a lot of times I talk to guys about what we call system one and system two thinking. System one is very reactionary. Um, So I might explain it to the guys. uh, If I just tossed a ball to them, they would catch it. Now, they might catch it with the right hand or left hand. Didn't matter. It's reactionary. They go based off of habit and all the experience that they've had just to react and catch the baseball. Um, System two is more thought provoking. You're thinking through that. Now, our hitters cannot go to the plate or be actually in the batter's box and expect themselves to be successful if they're doing system two thinking because everything happens so fast. Um, Once the ball is released, or even if the once the uh, pitcher starts to go through their windup, if they're in system two thinking, everything is going to go even faster. And, you know, of course, we're facing uh, pitchers who might be throwing 95 miles an hour. So that's uh, it's not going to end up very well for our for our hitters. So understanding uh, all might. So now knowing system one and system two, uh, thinking about uh, the think box and the do box. So outside of the batter's box is the think box. Okay, what's the situation? Uh, What's the count? Uh, Where are the runners? What might this guy do? What might he uh, throw? And that has to also be partly done in the dugout as well. So there's so much information that we're trying to gather. Then what am I going to commit to? That happens in the think box. That's outside of the batter's box. Once I step in the do box, I have my commitment. Now it's go. Um, And so it's it's first understanding where I need to be, when I need to be there, uh, and then developing that thinking process. And so looking at it from a, a practical perspective, you've mentioned those kind of two two stages, if you like. How do you get an individual who maybe is using all that data and then it's ended up being paralysis by analysis mm. to stick back to stage one because as you said there if for example you've got someone who's throwing a 95 mile an hour fastball down the middle of the plate that is very different to what a change up or a slider would do and where that would be on the plate and if you're go- there constantly thinking well maybe he does this in the count maybe he does that in the count by the time you've actually decided what you're going to do it's too late as you mentioned there so how do you get them to kind of go through all those equations or go actually the data says he's probably going to throw this and then just allow them to be in the space where it's like now I'm going to react to what I see so I might think he's going to throw a slider but I'm comfortable if he doesn't I'm going to swing because I'm I'm playing what I see almost how do you get them to go from I guess that stage one thinking which some of them would like to do because you want to have the information into stage one where it's you know, just react to play what you see in is the terminology we use in football. Play what you see rather than play what you think is going to happen. Right. I think so much of it is going to go to the preparation, uh, whether that be the physical preparation, 
of batting practice, uh, whether that's on the field or in the cage before the games. Uh, it's just it's continual reps based off of what we're trying to do. And I think what the best hitters or the best uh, pitchers and position players, uh, wherever they're at in the field, what they do the best is like they keep things very, very simple. So if we're sticking with the hitters is that at the end of the day, uh, you have to be on time. Well, one, you have to see the baseball and you have to be on time. And so focusing on those aspects. And I think what most hitters will talk about is be on time for the fastball because it's the fastest. So we first want to understand like what what velocities uh, does the pitcher uh, possess with each of their pitches? And so now work off the fastest one. So if the fastball is at 93 to 95, we first have to be on time for that velocity because it's going to be harder to catch up to it uh, than it is to slow down for a slider that's thrown at 83 to 85. So, you know, where some guys get caught in between is if they're sitting for a slower pitch, if they're thinking, okay, he's going to throw me a fastball and I know the range is from 83 to 85, and then he throws a fastball down the middle at 93 to 95, it's going to be really hard to catch up to that. So start with the fastest, be on time for the fastest, and then um, you allow yourself the ability to adjust to anything off of that pitch. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to swing at that as well. So sometimes if someone is going, and like you said, paralysis by analysis, let's start to simplify the aspects of the task. And I think this links in quite nicely to a video that I saw you tweeted out uh, over the last couple of days. Is it Hap who hit a home run off the first pitch of the major league season? And he was talking through actually the process he went through with the mental skills coach and what they actually did together. Um, obviously, you've seen the video because you retweeted it. Do you just want to explain to people kind of that analysis piece that he'd done before the prior to the work and then also I guess the preparation piece for him of what that actually looked like in practice to get him ready for that that at bat. Right so if I remember from the video um, so it's it's him and Joe Madden. Joe Madden was the manager but also a really big proponent of the mental game who also has ties to Ken Revisa who I had mentioned earlier on. Joe uh, was a, uh, was the manager of the Rays at the time of Evan Longoria and Ken Revisa. Um, so there's a tie there. And so Ian Happ being a being new to Major League Baseball, I believe that was his very first um, uh, opening day and he was leading off. And so it kind of takes, he takes us through a little bit of like understanding what that pitcher has. And I don't remember exactly the whole uh, repertoire that the pitcher has, but he, um, Ian Happ knows that he likes his fastball. And also it's the very first pitch of the MLB season. It's the very first pitch of the, the game. Many times you're going to get fastballs. Also pitchers want to get ahead. Uh, when pitchers get ahead of hitters, averages start to go down pretty drastically. Uh, so that's very advantageous for pitchers to get ahead of hitters. So you have to throw strikes. Um, so on top of understanding what it is that the tendencies or anticipating what uh, he's most likely going to get, he's also doing going through like a breathing exercise that he does with Madden. And so um, I, it definitely has a little bit of base with uh, progressive muscle relaxation, PMR, what we'll call it, and where Hap and uh, Madden will inhale and squeeze their hands together. And then on the exhale, they release, right? And so Madden talks about if you want to know what it's like to be loose, sometimes you have to know what it's like to be tight. So that's where that squeezing comes in and then releasing. Also, the breath is a great way not only to get present, but it is one of the only ways that we can completely uh, flip from psychological and physiological and, and how those go together. How we breathe can influence our heart rate. And so I would imagine things are kind of speeding up for HAP um, or they have the ability to speed up for HAP, as I've mentioned, all the, all the things that go into this scenario. So just getting in control of himself so he can be in control of his performance. Uh, so just it's a great little clip. 
um, and just kind of walks through all the strategy that goes into it along with the uh, emotional uh, regulation. Perfect. So you obviously mentioned PMR there. Could you just talk through, I guess, what that what that actually stands for and then what that means in a practical setting and how you help individuals with it? Yeah. So the progressive muscle relaxation, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. That particular um, piece, what they did is very, very short of just like squeezing your hands and letting it go. Um, but there are other ways of like working throughout your whole body, almost like part of like a body scan and just like um, tensing and relaxing your muscles from your feet uh, through your um probably up to your like your shoulders and just a good way to really develop some self-awareness, uh, relaxation, um, and on top of the, the breathing mechanics as well of just getting into the present, getting into um, uh, developing more self-awareness. And I guess from a, a batter's perspective or um pitcher's perspective as well when you're in that heat of the battle in terms of going in pitch counts etc at times it can get tense particularly if it's moments of high uh high value so you know world series particular line on the game or i always think with the closing pitches is an interesting one because you're coming in as, as a reliever or whatnot and if you don't see out the game all of a sudden that chord could cause anxiety and it's a change of being you've gone from doing nine innings to 12 or whatever that may be and there'd be stress around that so I guess from a purpose perspective how do they actually use that to help them perform what what type of things they put in place to help them maybe be more at ease when they're at the at bat or when they're pitching yeah uh, well like I mentioned the the breath can be a good way to do it but also like perspective shifting um, one of maybe kind of cliche um, sayings nowadays is like pressure is a privilege, um, but it can't, those, those reframing aspects can really help some players get to a point where like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for this. Um, I'm excited to do this rather than nervous. Uh, sometimes we'll talk about how physiologically when you're nervous and you're feeling like, okay, your hands are sweating, your heart is racing. Um, maybe a little bit shaky. Uh, that can be a lot of the same physiological symptoms of when you're super excited to do something. And so it's up to you to determine what which one it is. Many times we have the negative connotation when we say I'm nervous, that now I'm not going to perform one. Well, and then when you're excited, you're you're ready to perform. And so it's like, okay, is your body telling you that you're ready to perform? Or are you going to view it as your body is telling you that you're not ready to perform? Uh, so there are these different aspects that you can, or different kind of roads you can go down to try to influence performance. And, and I continually go back to it, but ultimately get present because the idea of nervous is like worry, anxiety. And that's all about like, well, what if, uh, what, ha what if I do the same thing that happened in the past? Or what if I... Uh, make a mistake and that's all future and past oriented rather than like i'm excited to do this right now which is present moment one thing i think is interesting particularly in the u.s system is you kind of get a lot of high pressure we'll put that in inverted commas situations yeah. relatively early on in in your career so you go high school the ability to go and get a scholarship um, with the, the fees obviously the the colleges have out there um and then when you're in college the ability to have pros coming and scouting you and getting drafted and all that type of stuff but i can then imagine if you get i'm going to be disrespectful for a certain team here. we'll do it for nfl because i'm a miami dolphins fans so i don't mind being disrespectful okay. miami dolphins have been distinctly average for a prolonged period of time so a lot of the people in there get in their setup if they've been with the Dolphins for a long period, wouldn't have actually played in any meaningful games in terms of high value or high pressure going in playoffs, etc. So how do you go around preparing individuals who might eventually get to that? Because if you've gone through all the pressurized situations early in your career, and then maybe you have a five, six year period where there is a bit of pressure, but you're not winning a lot, there's no 
no real you know high end value on it people aren't watching to all of a sudden getting a first round pick who's blowing it out of the water and now you're on you know the, you're at the world series and you're on the big stage and you need to perform how can you actually prepare people for that and i guess not use their 18 or 21 year old self as a benchmark for where they are now because like you mentioned it's a very different from 18 to 25 18 to 26 you're physically different but you're psychologically different as well right well i i for starters i don't think anything can replicate the real thing as hard as you try i don't think it'll replicate it you know if we're going with the uh, with the NFL, I don't know if there's really anything we can do to totally replicate what it would be like to play in the Super Bowl. For guys who have never played in the Super Bowl, like no practice that you do, no amount of like noise that you add to the stadium, um, it's just not going to truly recreate it. But what I think you can do is as you prepare for that, um, and as like you work throughout the season or even before the season is outlining, like, what can you expect in those moments? Uh, maybe you you can't totally expect uh, there aren't so many uh, things that you can anticipate because you've actually never been there. But for so many of our um, American born athletes or if you've grown up watching those sports, like you have a maybe a general idea of what might take place of just like the crowd. Um, the the noise as well, maybe even just the somewhat of like the magnitude of it, of just the how important each play is and just kind of grasp that. OK, so you can expect it. And also it's the two best teams. So you can expect it to be a pretty close game. And in close games, it comes down to uh, maybe one or two plays or what we might remember one or two plays that all oh, that won the game or that lost the game. Um, but now it's like, okay, what can we expect? What what can we do about it? And I think that's where it goes to uh, the self-regulation piece. So we know that we're most likely going to get pretty amped up. Our heart rate, our heart is going to race a little bit more. And uh, with knowing that, if our heart races for in general for for people, if it goes above 115 beats per minute, we start to lose fine motor skills. That doesn't mean that. Uh, if it reaches 115 beats per minute, like we can't throw anything or or walk or anything like that. But like it just makes it a little bit more difficult. And in these sports, like your fine motor skills, your hand-eye coordination, like you need those. Um, and so if they start to suffer so much that you can't compete at your best, all right, what can you do? And I continually go back to the breath. Like that's why if we um, are truly serious about uh, preparing for the biggest stage, we should probably be doing some breath work each day. And that might just be um, understanding that we want to breathe diaphragmatically. So our we want our rib cage to expand on the inhale and kind of and start to shrink on the exhale. Uh, on top of that, uh, it might be understanding that when when we want to slow our heart rate down, we want to make the exhale a little bit longer. Now we're getting into the parasympathetic rather than the sympathetic, which sympathetic is the fight or flight, which is talked about a lot, but the rest and digest of the parasympathetic is not talked about as much. Um, and so it's getting a balance of that many times. And for most people in those pressure situations, it's about slowing themselves down rather than speeding themselves up. Um, and so the exhale elongating the exhale is going to slow them down. Also, you can always like start to direct your thoughts on a daily basis. Like uncertainty breeds negativity. All right. So when we have an uncertain, um, when we face uncertainty in our day, where does our first thought go? Does it go to, oh, uh, here we go again. All right, let's reframe it quickly. Once we notice it, we got to reframe it right away. Um, it's not about the outcome. It's like, okay, what are you going to do in this opportunity? So I think those are the best ways to uh, to go about it but again it's going to be really hard to totally replicate it but if you can start to equip yourself with these tools um you i think you give yourself the best chance to regulate your emotions and then be able to use your abilities to the best of your ability i'm just thinking as you're talking there and the uncertainty 
breeds negativity i think it's so true because you know, the amount of people that don't like change etc or your immediate thought to something happening is like oh I wish that hadn't happened. Why is that? Is there a psychological reason for that? Is there a survival instinct for that? What's the purpose for that immediate reaction to be negative to the uncertainty? I think it goes a little bit back to the piece of maybe um, like our ancestors and and kind of like our ancient brain. Uh, if we were to create a scenario um, of, you know, like cavemen times, if the bush was rustling, but you didn't know it was in it, that uncertainty of like, well, I'm not sure what it is. Let's just run the other way rather than stay and wait. Um, it kind of confirmed our belief that maybe something in there is going, could kill us, right? And so now over time, uh, and even back up, like, let's say there are three people in that scenario and the bush rustles, two of them are like, yeah, let's get out of here. They're not going to wait and see. And one of them is like, well, I don't know, like maybe who knows what it is. That person stays and the off chance it's a saber-toothed tiger and then that person gets eaten. Well, now it is confirming the two that left. It confirms their belief, which now they can, maybe they continually talk about that. And now it's like kind of hard, uh, hardwiring them for future um, experiences. And I also believe um, that our body wants to keep us safe and comfortable. So if it thinks about the things that could most likely hurt us, it's always on the lookout for things that would maybe hurt us and make us uncomfortable and they wants to keep us comfortable. So um, it's just trying to find all the different reasons why this is going to happen or why that could happen and like keep yourself safe. And then when it does keep you safe, like you're comfortable. So it just continually looks for these things. Uh, I think that's a really interesting point. I said it's something in day-to-day -day life, people do it all the time. It's right. Someone's leaving their job or, you know, something's happened where there's going to be a bit of change and the immediate reaction is a negative one where actually can you reframe that? Um, yeah, really, really interesting. I guess from you, for the work that you've done with the individuals you work with, is there any particular characteristics or anything they're particularly good at that you can use as an identifier of who's going to succeed? So, so you mentioned that kind of the talent at the top end gets closer and closer. Obviously, you still have your outliers like your Michael Jordans and Bryce Harpers and all that type of stuff. But um, is there anything from a, a psychological perspective you go, actually, the people that progress through the pathway more often than not exhibit these type of characteristics? Mm. Yeah, from my experience, I think the most successful are um, really, really disciplined in what they believe. Um, and they're very self-aware of what it, what makes them good. So they know their strengths. Uh, if they are, whether they are really, really talented, what like let's say they're the most talented on the team, they are aware of what they do well. And even if the guys who are not the most talented, uh, they're also aware of what they do well. And then they they consistently get to that point. Like that's what they're hunting each game. So like if it's a pitcher who has a he identifies the fact that his cutter is really, really good. Consistently, it's very good. And we also have ways of tracking, you know, pitches and like, okay, what is a really good pitch? So we can help players identify their strengths. Um, but it's like, okay, so I know my, my cutter is really good. Well, how often do they go to it? In big situations, are you going to go and use your best stuff? Or are you going to get beat with your third best pitch? Right. We, we know that we're going to get beat eventually. It's like, are you going to get beat with your best? Or are you going to get beat with your second best, third best pitch or a hitter understanding that they might not have the, the most power? And it is and actually to go and try to be a power hitter is a detriment to them. And then they kind of lean more into, OK, I'm going to make more contact. It doesn't mean they're going to just hit the ball on the ground and um, kind of just be like hit soft, go for soft contact, but th they do put more of a premium on contact. So I go back to 
they understand what it is that they do well and they consistently lean in on their strengths. And how do you how do you monitor that or how do you assess that? So obviously the draft system in all American sports is a is a really comprehensive one and you'll do a lot of checks on people players and people coming out of, of college. So how do you guys as a staff um identify that this individual exhibits the I guess potential psychological makeup that will help them make that step but also that they exhibit what you're alluding to there is a level of self-awareness of actually this is what I'm good at and this is why I'm good at it and all of that type of factors around it so is there any particular test you use or how do you go around assessing that from a recruitment perspective? That's a great question and I think it's something that we are continually trying to figure out do we give our uh, our players some personality and, and psychological uh, tests? We we do, um, but I don't necessarily. They, those are a glimpse into who who a person is. I don't I don't think we use them, and I don't think anyone uh, uses them nowadays as like the end all be all because the, there's just so much that goes into just being a, a human that I don't know if it can get, you know, identified in, in a hundred questions. Um, it can give us some clues about, you know, how they might make decisions or how they might view um, the world in itself, but people can also change, right? We're also dealing with athletes who are from eight, 18 to 22 when we draft them um, or sign them and like they're, they can definitely change. They're malleable. Um, particularly at that time. Um, and so, but a lot of it, like for me at least, goes to conversations and asking questions. Like I'll ask a lot of the guys, like, what's, what are your strengths? Some guys can answer it right away and other guys, they don't know. And so I think both of those are great responses because one of them is going to lead to the point of like, well, how often do you uh, use your strengths? How often are you leaning into those and and uh, focusing on them during competition? And then the other one goes to, okay, like how can we find your strengths? Like what can we look to? Uh, whether it's some of the data that we have, uh, or can they start to kind of be more aware of what they do well? So either way, I think presents great opportunity for both of those types of players to start to be more consistent. And looking at it from a performance perspective, obviously certain styles of play or certain styles of at-bat or certain styles of pitching is going to be um, more applicable to certain teams than others. So how does that go around from a coaching perspective of understanding where this individual's at, where their super strengths are and how that's then going to fit in with our team culture or our team identity how how do they make that transition piece across mm, i think that's that's also a really good question and and i think so much of on the minor league side um maybe maybe you're not so uh focused on like the team culture itself it's not to say that it doesn't matter but uh very much of the minor league system is about development and trying to get our players to the big leagues and 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 um help them be impact big leaguers not just kind of like get there for a couple days and then go back to the minor leagues or like um at the end of the day it's a business and what drives the business is winning at the big league level and so the more wins you have at the big league level, the better the organization, the better the company, the better the business. Uh, and so the the development at the bottom, like we can, I do believe that the better the development, the more wins you have at the minor league level. And I think that's something that we've, we've been fairly good at. If you look at the past years, we have won a lot at the minor league level. We've also won a fair amount at the big league level. Uh, so it's it's certainly a testament to our players, um, first and foremost, but um, our coaches and our scouts as, as well. And so just trying to pick um, and understand players and uh, the but the culture, that's a it's an interesting point. I think it goes to 
we we certainly want players who are driven, um, who are probably results driven, but process oriented. And so that's probably something that we uh, either talk about a fair amount or we uh, I know that I could uh, try to talk about that a lot as well. And looking at it from a, a development piece that like you mentioned there, how much work can you guys or do you guys do in supporting the players through that, I guess, psychological development? So, you know, if if a player leaves college early and gets drafted at 19, 20, and they're not fully developed until the age of 25 and they manage to stay in the system for that period, how much are you able to actually help sculpt them as an individual and making sure that they're holistically well cared for and well balanced etc is that something you're able to assist them with or is it more kind of they focus more on the performance side and that's where you guys kind of lay your bet if you like yeah that it's a it's an interesting thought i think ultimately um whether we like it or not we're definitely um aiding in that um and i say like it or not because because our culture is going to either um, aid them going in a direction that is probably um, helpful for them, or it could go the other way. And the people that they're around are going to influence those those aspects of that development uh, as a as a person, as an athlete. Uh, and so I think it's something that we're probably conscious of. I would imagine all organizations are pretty conscious of that. Um, I think it's certainly something that we probably could all be uh, conscious of daily of like, how are you setting the environment and how that environment plays to not just the performance, but the, the personal, the personal aspects of, of the athletes uh, from their nutrition to their recovery and uh, just the overall um, like well-being. And last question for me, which might be a difficult one, but who's the most impressive athlete you've worked with from a psychological perspective and why? Mm. Well, I certainly, uh, I, I probably can't really answer it um, from, from a bunch of, well, not necessarily a bunch, but from a couple of different, different aspects. One of the biggest things for for myself and and with the work with the athletes is is that trust aspect um i i could give my opinion on that um of of who is maybe improved the most or who is like the most mentally strong those aspects um but also trying to keep a, a fair amount of stuff in-house uh of of the work with that as i said the the trust is a huge thing and uh, continuing to keep that. But um, I, I do think it's a great question. And I, I think it's something that um, I do ponder, um, you know, for myself as well, like, okay, who, who really is? So that I, I didn't answer it, um, <laughs> but uh, hopefully you, you understand why. No, that's absolutely fine. I think we all understand you, you have a duty of care to the guys as well. You want to make sure, as you said, that their work that they're doing is personable to them and whatnot. But it's a really appreciate your time. I think some really good insight into what you are doing as a practitioner and also, you know, those people working towards that top end. What does their journey look like? And ultimately, how are they trying to conduct themselves, be more self-aware, be more ready that when they do get into that environment, they've got a skill set that will allow them to perform, but also a baseline that allows them to maybe not get distracted as we spoke about earlier. So yeah, Chris, really appreciate your time and catch up with you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoyed it.